Welcome back to Terra Stories, news from the field. In this series, we share the stories of wildlife rangers on the front lines of the fight against poaching, how technology is being used to support their efforts, and what life is like for those who are creating sustainable economies for the vulnerable and at-risk populations who are protecting Earth's most precious resources. I'm your host, Kim Langbecker. Today's guests are Mark Goss, who is the trustee and CEO of Mara Elephant Project, and Dr. Jake Wall, who's the director of research and conservation, uh, also from Mara Elephant Project. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I'm, I'm calling you from uh, snowy Santa Fe, New Mexico, and you are in uh, East Africa, in Kenya. Can you kind of give us a sense of where you are located currently? Well, right now we're in the Masai Mara, um, and it's it's rainy here, so we've just had a big thunderstorm. Wonderful. It is the rainy season there. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Gotcha. So, so Mark, uh, you've been with the organization uh, since 2011. Can you give us a sense of what the Mara Elephant Project does and um, why you work specifically with elephants? And kind of also, for mo most people may have not had a chance to have gone to the Mara. What, what is the Mara? If you can give us a little bit of a, an explanation about that. Sure. So um, the Maasai Mara is in southwest Kenya, um, East Africa. Uh, this is an ecosystem um, which is part of a, a much greater ecosystem, which is the Serengeti and Gorongoro ecosystem. Um, we're in the northern portion of that ecosystem, so the Maasai Mara. Um, really, it's one of our most, or certainly in Africa, but also globally famous big um, wildlife areas or wildlife areas for big mammals. So we have a large population of elephants. We also have several million wildebeest that move up every year from the Serengeti into the Maasai Mara. So if you've ever seen wildebeest running across a river and um, in their tens of thousands, you're on TV, you're looking at the Mara. And how did the, the Mara Elephant Project get started? Um, what was sort of the genesis of, of why um, this organization came into being? So um, in 2010, we saw an increase in elephant poaching in the Maasai Mara. And when I mean we, I was managing some of the uh, community conservancies, which are the dispersal area for the Maasai Mara National Reserve. And all um, in the surrounding uh, areas, uh, we were seeing an increase in elephant poaching. Um, so we really started to started up to address that, but also to understand about elephant movements. So um, Dr. Jake Wall and, and Save the Elephants um, started by collaring 10 elephants. Once we collared the 10 elephants, we started getting an idea of the areas that elephants were using and quantifiably um, understanding that. Um, at the same time, we put together uh, anti-poaching teams from local communities, uh, trained them up, got them the right gear and, and paid them um, good salaries to do this work, to be ambassadors for the elephants and to be protectors on the ground. 
And Jake, as Director of Research and Conservation for the Mara Elephant Project, give us a sense of what that means and how your work um, really impacts uh, what you do on the ground. Yeah, well, I guess it's um, it's a fairly new department at uh, Mara Elephant Project. I started full-time in 2019 in January. Um, and so it's really our research division is about a year and a half old now. Um, we've um, really focused uh, on the tracking data, on the elephant movement data. Um, and basically, we, we look to the elephants to tell us what's important about the landscape uh, for them. And, you know, we can't interview elephants, so we use uh, the proxy of where they go and how long they spend uh, to figure that out. And so a lot of what we're doing right now is, um, you know, we're, we're sitting on nearly a, um, nine years of data. Um, and so we're, we're going through and we're looking at individuals and what characteristics they display in terms of their home ranges. So a home range is basically the, the overall area that an elephant will use. Um, and within that home range extent, there are certain areas that are very important to elephants, like access to water, uh, access to shade when it's sunny out, access to good um, vegetation. Uh, obviously, they eat uh, an incredible amount of food. And so we look at where the elephants go, and then we try and link that back with characteristics in the landscape to understand better what sort of resources elephants are using, in what proportion, uh, what times of year, and looking at seasonality. Um, and that paints a picture uh, per tracked individual um, of what what is important to that individual and so we we scale that up then to the population and then we understand better about what resources what type of space um, elephants need in this ecosystem and one of the things we're finding is that um, it's actually you know the interaction between humans and elephants is probably the most important thing that we need to understand uh, right now and and then talk a little bit about that, because I think for, for some folks, they may not really understand that conflict um, between humans and not just elephants, but in, in your particular case, it's the elephants that you're working with. How does that impact both and, and how does that inform the work that you do? Yeah, well, it's um, we're seeing what we're seeing now is sort of a shift in um, in human elephant relations in this part of the world. So the Maasai who lived here traditionally um, were pastoralists, which meant that they have um, livestock such as cows and goats and sheep that they would they would keep um, and they would graze those animals. And it turns out that pastoralism is very um, conducive to humans living in, uh, in proximity with people. So you can have active pastoralism and you can have wildlife. And as long as the density of livestock doesn't get too high, um, those two things can live harmoniously together. And so traditionally the Maasai as pastoralists were, were you know, within the domain of elephants and, and likewise. Um, but what we're seeing in, in probably the last 20 to 30 years is a shift towards more of an agricultural um, base. So people who might have traditionally moved um, following the, the green grass with their livestock have now set up fences 
um, and are instead trying to protect areas of land um, for their, their cows and their goats, but not following the, the movements of, of rain pattern the way they used to. Um, so this is causing a shift in terms of how the land is being used. So it's, it's converting more towards agriculture um, and we're seeing more and more fencing develop. And that's really where you get the rise in human elephant conflict. As soon as you start planting crops, um, that becomes a target then for elephants. And that is what leads to then the human elephant conflict. So before that shift occurred, there was very, very little conflict between humans and elephants, even though they were both found in the same place. Um, but now we're seeing sort of a, well, we are seeing a, a rise in human elephant conflict as more and more agriculture gets planted and as more fences get erected. And also along with that, you're, you know, on a good day, Mark, you're dealing with not just the human elephant conflict, but you're also dealing with poaching and um, how how that impacts the populations of elephant and also the, the communities. Can you talk a little bit about the work that you're doing and the partnerships that you've developed? Um, you know, the rangers that you work with, I would imagine, come from some some of the local Maasai communities. Is that correct? Sure. Yes. No. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I think MEP since the the, the beginning and, and even before MEP is the conservation work happening outside the formally protected government areas is when you're managing land or managing areas for, for wildlife is you become a first responder. So in our first several years, our, our response was um, a lot to poaching. So we, we set up an intel network. Um, of uh, informers, undercover rangers, um, breaking into these poaching gangs and really breaking down the poaching network. That resulted in uh, over 2,000 pounds of ivory seizures, over 400 arrests of middlemen and dealers. Um, I think at the same time, uh, it's also reacting to a number of other issues surrounding wildlife. This could be, if you're uh, in a position in a rural area that you have uh, well-trained uh, rangers, uh, one of one of their training um, packets is is a patrol medic, so you have the ability to do some first aid and then the ability to get an injured person to hospital or to a clinic. Um, at the same time as as we were doing all of the anti-poaching work, uh, we were providing. Um, uh, conflict mitigation services in the community. So when farmers went into conflict and uh, uh, with elephants and other wildlife, uh, we were able to to respond and get there with the rangers, uh, do some mitigation. And mitigation um, means uh, pushing the elephants out of the farms, um, protecting people's farms, um, using what we call the the human elephant conflict mitigation toolkit. And really what we've seen in the last several years is as we sort of sewed up the, the poaching um, issue in this area um, through active intel work, boots on the ground, um, patrolling work, um, that we really saw that the, 
issue that was not being addressed appropriately was conflict, which obviously leads into poaching if nothing is done about it when farmers get very angry with, with wildlife. Um, but what we sort of say at the same time is we can't stop that protection work. So the on-the-ground um, active anti-poaching work has to continue for these uh, poaching cells um, not to, to break out again. Um, but just as a, and I, I sort of to paint the picture is um, the first responder in a, in a large area um, means that you are first on the scene in any matter of, of crisis uh, issues. And although many times um, it's not di directly elephant related is that the communities uh, are, are calling us out to, to help them because we built up this trust um, within the community that we, we will respond. Um, so that's really what the sort of role that we've been playing um, in this ecosystem. And, and that is very much um, supported by government and uh, specifically the Kenya Wildlife Service. So our, our sort of most important partner on the ground um, for law enforcement especially is the Kenya Wildlife Service and the the KWS um, is is a, an armed uh, response and has the the um, the mandate to protect wildlife all over Kenya. Um, some of the places, uh, especially on private land, where KWS doesn't have a national park or reserve, where it's communities that have come together to to protect wildlife. Um, through tourism, um, we have been very much augmenting their uh, capacity uh, to protect wildlife. And so uh, we deploy side by side on especially, well, all law enforcement um, operations, um, but also on conflict mitigation operations. Uh, the ability to, to do that has also been augmented by our other partners, which is which are the the community conservancies, um, the county government, the Kenya Forest Service, uh, and other NGOs, um, development NGOs working with communities on some of the development, sustainable development work. Yeah. And you you talked about um, tourism and and. Um, obviously, that is a massive source of economic opportunity for Kenya as a whole and for local communities and the number of schemes that are attached to that, whether it's an ecotourism lodge or um, you know, doing game drives or whatever it might be. Clearly, we are all in a global pandemic with COVID-19, and I'm curious how that has affected um, the uh, the mood on the ground because there's obviously it's a benefit for them to have tourism activities but now that is not happening so are you seeing any increase in some of the issues that you've had success with like human elephant conflict and the de decrease in poaching activities um, since COVID-19 has taken hold? Um, yes, I think the, the short answer to, to that is, is um, we're going to see an increase um, in attempted poaching, in lawlessness in, in general. Um, I, I think that 
the economic downfall is rather than direct. Well, we don't know yet. We're still in the early days of the pandemic in, in Kenya, um, but probably more um, desperate people um, affecting negatively affecting um, poaching and bushmeat poaching than the virus itself. So with um, no tourism, there's no jobs, uh, there's no money coming in from lease payments. The Mar North Conservancy alone last year paid out $1.6 million in lease payments to 800 uh, landowners. Um, sorry about that. And so those 800 landowners who probably each of them have families of between five and, and ten people were, were directly benefiting from tourism and conservation. Now that's overnight, that's all but dried up. So I think um, obviously different industries have been hurt in different degrees. Tourism has been hit extremely badly. Um, with no tourists in the area, just direct direct uh, protection work, there's no eyes on the ground. So tourists played a part in the role of security and tourist guides, driver guides, um, tourist facilities, all played a, a role in security. Um, without that, um, never mind the, the increased desperate people from loss of jobs, but is the direct um, decrease in um, observation in these larger wildlife areas. Jay, can you talk a little bit about what Kenya is doing um, in response to COVID-19 as a, as a country? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're following it as best we can. Um, but I think the government has taken pretty um, strong measures to lock down right now. Um, as Mark said, uh, you know, we're in the early days still. Um, I think the first recorded case was on March 13th, so we're, we're exactly a month um, later than that. Um, they've instituted, you know, a lockdown in, in some of the urban areas where um, the disease has really, um, or there's high population density in four different urban areas um, you can't travel in and out of now. Um, and I think you know, they're, they're seeing what they can do. And I think they've done a pretty good job so far. I mean, there's been maybe, uh, um, you know, they, they really don't want this to spread. Um, Kenya, unfortunately, has huge populations of, of very poor people living in slum-like conditions. Um, and if this disease were to get into some of the, the places like Mathari Valley, um, it, would be, it would be a disaster. So I think for the next sort of few weeks, um, we'll be in this lockdown position. Um, there will be very little opportunity for movement or um, tourism. But I think eventually, you know, tourism was, I think, the second biggest um, industry in Kenya. And um, I think all over the globe, people are having to look at the balance between the economics uh, of, of COVID versus the, the risk to people's health um, and what that means. And, and it's probably going to end up being sort of a balancing act. Um, but yeah, we don't, we're not experts on this. Um, you know, we're very focused on elephants um, and we're not public health uh, um, experts. So we're, we're following all of the 
sort of isolation rules um, and national mandates and um, you know hoping as everyone is that this is going to be over sooner than later. I have friends in uh, Kitangela and Majimoto, and um, they've shared some of what their communities are are dealing with. And and you know, one of the things that they said was, it, it feels like any other time that we've had to sort of go into this very um, closed, quiet space when we've had to deal with pandemics, and you know, sort of not really knowing what the outside world. Um, is is dealing with so I, I appreciate that perspective. I, I'm curious have have you all at the Mara Elephant Project had to shift your how you do business, how how your operations are are handled because of coronavirus? And if so, uh, and I'm sure that you have, but in what way have you had to shift things? Uh-huh. So um, no, definitely we've seen some some changes since uh, the middle of March. Um, uh, immediately, what we did was we set up uh, a quarantine camp at the headquarters. We've set up a transient team. Um, we've set up different isolation groups uh, at the headquarters. We've moved our rangers to on the in the outpost areas to areas which are more isolated. That worked well for um, some of the forest patrols, some of the, the security work. It obviously doesn't work well in community areas when elephants are going into people's farms and we need to respond. So that means that then we need to engage with community, which what we've really said is, and as Jake said, we're not healthcare workers um, and we don't want to be part of the problem. Um, and meaning that spreading the virus. So what we have implemented as an organization is, um, and the, obviously the government as well is, is, is doing this, but is implementing social distancing protocols in terms of how you greet people, how you uh, engage with, with community. But one step more than that is being good examples of some of the practices so wearing masks wearing protective um, equipment um, and making sure we're following all those protocols something else that we've been uh, doing is is disseminating some information um, about hand washing about general hygiene uh, the social distancing one of the uh, good ideas which has um, been circulated uh, uh, through the internet has been the tippy tap is a way to wash your hands without touching um, containers, without touching um, uh, surfaces. Um, so we've built a number of those in some of the areas that 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 we work in. Um, but really, is to to make sure we're still able to do elephant conservation work while protecting ourselves, protecting those around us, educating our staff, making sure that. Um, they're communicating with their families. Uh, one of the things our mechanic just said yesterday that he would like to take some time off. He knows he has to come back into quarantine when he comes back, but so that he can implement some of the ideas and procedures um, that we have at MEP back in his home village. So um, it's stuff that makes sense. It's, 
it's things that sometimes don't come naturally if if your culture is um uh, to uh, greet each other by touching each other on the, sometimes in um well all the time in maasai culture younger people present the top of their head to be touched by an elder so all those things that um you sort of people would do on a normal basis now need to change so changing some of those um habits just can, needs to continue to be um taught to people and just reminded and continue to to be a practice that it's very easy to pick up a pen that someone else has touched with and just forget about it that you've done that so you know just continuously um using these new protocols uh, to keep yourself and, and others around you safe um, has been a big, big change at MEP. Um, we're, we're also expecting um, to do some more uh, patrol work in some of the areas that there was probably um, more activity during the tourism times like we talked about earlier. So that's a change in terms of pol policing. Um, yeah, and, uh, yeah. And um, we've obviously had some issues here in the States where frontline workers, not just healthcare workers, but, um, you know, people in the grocery stores, people, you know, that are, um, you know, d delivery drivers and things like that, not having access to some of those um, kinds of protective gear, the face mask, the gloves, whatever. Have, have you had those kinds of issues in trying to be part of the solution um, and not being able to have access to those things. So yes, yeah, we've had uh, struggles getting some of that um, PPE, um, personal protective equipment. Uh, luckily, we have a, um, a very good um, procurement officer in Nairobi who has been managed to get uh, gloves and masks and uh, hazmat suits, goggles. Um, we've also uh, been working with other partners to try and import some of that um, equipment. Um, but that was a, before we even moved to start mitigating conflict in a certain area, which is really kicked off. We made sure that all of our rangers before they were deployed had the necessary equipment. Um, yeah. And Jake, I you know, I think most people don't really have a grasp on what it is like to be on the front lines, to be a ranger, and particularly now in in a situation where um, COVID-19 is a part of their daily life um, and what they're dealing with along with what they do. Can you give us a sense of what it's like to be a ranger on the ground? I know you're not one, but if you can kind of share some of um, of what your rangers are up against. Yeah, um, well, I, I think the MEP Rangers are doing really incredible work. Um, they, you know, the, the kinds of tasks that they've taken on um, are really hard. Um, so the two areas that we've isolated, uh, so we used, we used to have six Ranger teams and we grouped those into three. Uh, we have one here at the HQ and then we've got two uh, deployed in the field to continue with the monitoring work. Um, and so two of the places that we're actively monitoring right now are the Mao Forest as well as the Loita Forest. Um, and 
So one of the things that we're seeing is the um, is deforestation in both of those areas. And so our teams are continuing to, to patrol actively. Um, I don't know what the, I think it's about 14 kilometers, is sort of an average distance um, and that they would patrol in a, in a given day. Um, but those 14 kilometers are through some really rugged terrain. Um, they're marching up uh, small trails that have been carved out by elephants. Um, there's buffalo in those forests, so it's quite dangerous as well. Uh, they routinely run into elephants and buffalo, um, as well as the risk of running into poachers. And so the day-to-day -day life of a ranger is a very tough one. And um, so now with COVID-19, the added constraints of having to stay two meters apart <laughs> and not um, sort of engaging socially the way they would have, um, I would think it's quite a lonely job at the moment too because you're isolated you're away from your fam family um, you're deep in the forest and um, you're patrolling long distances every day and so um, yeah but that's what it takes to get the job done and i would say that the rangers have been very successful with um, exposing different illegal logging um, operations in the forest uh, things such as cedar uh, trees are being cut down and coveted because of the, the fact that they make really good fence posts as well as furniture, um, which are resilient to, to ants and, and termites. Um, and so the rangers are, are at the front lines. Um, and I guess, so our mandate really, you can divide it into three sort of um, uh, arenas. The first is anti-poaching. And so that's first and foremost where MEP concentrates or it has historically. And as Mark said, the you know for various reasons the poaching in this ecosystem has come down a lot. Um, we're we're stealing ourselves for the increase again, um, which may not come, and we, we're really hoping. But if it does, um, we'll be back to doing anti-poaching work. Um, second is the human elephant conflict work, which is our rangers are still engaging in 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 uh, certain areas in the Loita forest, especially. Um, and then third is habitat protection, because without habitat for elephants, you're not going to have a long-term conservation program. Um, and so that, that's sort of the three areas where we're focused. And so um, the rangers right now, I'd say, are doing mostly the HEC uh, human elephant conflict work as well as the habitat protection. Have Because of how you've had to shift your operations and redeploy and rethink some of what you're doing has have you actually because of COVID-19 seen um, a better outcome than perhaps you would have if you would continue doing you know something the way you had been doing it has there been any sort of a positive effect because you've had to shift things Um, I think it's probably too early to tell. <laughs> okay. We've, we've um, I would say, you know, one thing is that we're, we're quite data driven. So all of our patrols, um, we record the tracks of the rangers. Um, every time there's a, any kind of incident, such as whether it's finding a, a wire snare for bushmeat or coming across a, an illegally logged cedar tree or, um, helping to prevent elephants from coming into a farmer's field. 
Um, we have quite a strict routine of recording all of that um, into a centralized system. Um, and I think we will be able to analyze that data over time and see um, you know, what has been the shift to our patrolling effort, what has been the shift in, in the amount of, say, illegally logged trees as a result of COVID, and is there a correlation with uh, you know, a spike in, in illegal logging um, now that the, the government's a bit more focused on, on um, dealing with COVID-19 than it is with um, trying to prevent some of these other um, habitat destruction activities. So I think there will be a lot to, to look back at and, and analyze and, and hopefully look for trends. Um, but I think it's a bit too early to, to say that, yeah, there's been a positive outcome so far <laughs> to COVID-19. I mean, on the one... Yeah, on the, for wildlife. I mean, yeah. when you were looking at that, the cheetah on that kill the other day, all by itself. Yeah. Um, so it's probably some of the things that we also uh, don't have quantifiably uh, in front of us in terms of um, seeing a different trend, but we know that there's no tourists here, um, which means that uh, big cats, uh, cheetah, leopard, um, lions, are being less disturbed. So they're hunting without being disturbed. They're um, while they're sleeping during the day, they don't have 10 minibuses around them. And so, I mean, selfishly, it's, it's, it's great because when we go out and have a look in our area, you're, you're all on your own um, in the Masai Mar, which usually you share with several thousand people, tourists at any given time. Then maybe affluence being pumped into the rivers, uh, vehicles driving around and, and polluting, um, also creating ruts in the ground from off-road driving. Um, some, of, some of those um, positive for, for, for wildlife, perhaps. But then again, as we talked about earlier, the suspected increase in poaching. So, yeah, I think you're right. We don't know what's going to happen um, here in the Mara. One thing is for certain is that elephants are not practicing social distancing. <laughs> no, I, I would think that would be slightly challenging for elephants. I'd like to thank our guest today, Mark Goss, who is the trustee and CEO of Mara Elephant Project, and Dr. Jake Wall, Director of Research and Conservation. We have been having such an amazing conversation that we're going to stop here because there's much more to talk about. We're going to talk about how technology like drones and, and other kinds of what I like to call mad science are helping the folks at Mara Elephant Project protect the animals that they love so dearly. So come back next week and join us for Mara Elephant Project. Uh, if you'd like more information on Mara Elephant Project, go to www.maraelephantproject.org. To learn more about Terra's conservation efforts and support this important work, please visit terraconservation.org or terrastories.bz. And please reach out to us at info at for questions, comments, or suggestions for topics. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.